Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, early on in her career, she found herself working at a small startup film company, and one of their first projects was a little movie called Dirty Dancing. Well, you know how that turned out, and that was the beginning of a decades-long career as a producer of film and television and theater and creating a network for podcasts, all things Broadway, called the Broadway Podcast Network. So, so honored to have my dear friend, Dory Berenstein, on the podcast. Welcome, Dory. A-OK. A-OK. Hey, everybody. My guest today is Dory Berenstein. Dory is a four-time Tony Award-winning producer, an Emmy Award-winning director, a producer and writer of film and television, a Golden Globe nominee, and the founder and CEO of the Broadway Podcast Network. As a theater producer, Dory's Broadway shows include Is This a Room, Dana H., the 2020 revival of Company, The Prom, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Legally Blonde, The Musical, Thoroughly Modern Millie, The Crucible, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Full Moon, Flower Drum Song, Enchanted April, and Golden Child. I've seen every single one of those shows. Dory executive produced and or supervised over 50 feature films, special FX and or animated productions as well, including the classic film, Dirty Dancing. She began her career as an investment banker. We are so glad she, she switched lanes and uh, just so thrilled to welcome my dear friend Dory to the podcast. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. I'm so honored to be here. <laughs> wow. Well, it's so extraordinary to think about sort of, I mean, the idea of someone going from the world of investment banking and not just dabbling in the idea of investing in shows as as requests like that I'm sure came along into your life, but really sort of becoming um, a total trailblazer in the world of theater and Broadway as we know it. I personally want to say thank you. Um, I think back to Full Moon, Bill Irwin was recently on the podcast and just mm. thinking about shows that he's such a special yes, he's a unicorn human, yes. Um, <laughs> But just thinking about so many of the things I saw early on in my life that made me want to join this community. And you're so involved in so many of the things. And, and Dirty Dancing, of course, which is like a cult classic um, for every Jewish girl like myself who grew up um, and finally saw someone remotely like her in, in, a, in a leading role in a movie. Um, tell me a little bit about how you went from was it Morgan Stanley? Was that like the beginning of that professional career of young Dory? 
Well, it, yes and no. Um, okay. First of all, I just want to thank you for everything you have done and to inspire me and so many people in the theater community with your work, uh, you know, on stage and in every, in every capacity, you're just extraordinary. And I'm like president of your fan club. Um, Thank you. I, I wouldn't say that I made a transition from investment banking to to the world that I love in theater and also film and TV because it was more like I I just being from Los Angeles I I dreamt of doing something on Broadway or having any uh, you know I carry you know, carry someone's script, you know, I'd do anything to be part of the theater community. And I had no idea how to break in. I had no, I knew no one. And um, all the guidance and advice that I got was you need to get a foundation in business and finance. And so um, when I graduated from school, it was definitely the time of investment banking and mergers and acquisitions was was the way to go if you could. And so I dove into that kind of as um, uh, one, because I couldn't get the jobs I dreamed of, and two, because I felt that I was, uh, I was paving the way. I was, you know, laying the groundwork for what I hope was to come, you know, in, in the worlds that I wanted to be in. And at the time, it was, <laughs> it was so long ago, it was before cell phones, um, oh my goodness. And um, as you, you, know, you may remember, we had beepers, and so I lived with a beeper and when, you know, we were doing these deals and they'd, they'd happen and it would be so intense and you'd pull all nighters. And then there would be like a day, a day and a half where it would be very calm. And the, what I did is just beeline for the theater and I would see everything I possibly could, but I'd have this beeper that would beat me out of shows sometimes and I'd have to go running back. And um, so when I hear a beep, I just like have this terrible Pavlovian response to it. Like, no, you can't do this to me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, to me, it was like I, I was looking out the window over, you know, to, to Times Square. I wasn't really focused on investment banking, but it has served me well. And I did learn a lot. So I'm very grateful for that experience. Well, I, I mean, this is not to embarrass you, but only to go, oh, my God. I mean, you went to Smith, Yale and Harvard. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Um, forgive the New York fire trucks going by, but this is, <laughs> we're live people. Um, I, they're excited. I, when you say beeper, I thought, everyone must have thought you were a doctor running out of the theater each time. So it's cool. No one knows that it was because some deal was blowing up someplace right. else. Um, you grew up in LA and, and you know, sort of, express this idea that it was always something you you knew you wanted to go to. Um, were you seeing a lot of theater? Were you an actress as a kid? I know you you joke like I, you know, I carry someone's script around. Um, but what was the kind of introduction? Because LA is not, LA has incredible theater. And more and more over the years, it's 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 garnered this reputation as actually an incredible theater town. But it wasn't always, you know, it's Hollywood. And so people don't think of it as like, a place where people fall in love with theater. So tell me a little bit about growing up and what was your introduction to the world? Well, I, I never had a one ounce of talent. So it was never about uh, aspiring to be an actor though, you know, that would have been a lovely thing. 
Um, but that wasn't me. It was, it was a real fascination early on with how all these magical shows, the storytelling came together and these amazing people that were making it happen. Um, I was so fortunate because my parents from day one <laughs> would take me to every kind of theater. We were, we were, you know, had to get dressed up um, to go to theater, which was, it was a big deal in my house. Uh, and we would, we would go all the time. Um, and we were at the Amundsen, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, and, you know, I saw Carol Channing in Hello, Dolly, when I was very, very little, and I'll never forget it. And I spent, you know, years parading around the house, uh, pretending, you know, I was in that number. Um, and, and, but we'd go to puppet theater, and we'd go to uh, theater at UCLA, and um, my parents loved theater. And so we had cast albums playing in the house all the time. And how could I not just com completely fall in love with it? You know, I spent... Uh, my school years, though, uh, auditioning for every school uh, production and never got in anything because I was so terrible. <laughs> and that maybe, <laughs> maybe motivated me to try even harder to be part of the world because it just brought me such joy and happiness and also, um, you know, taught me about the world. Um, and, and uh, you know, as long as I can remember, it just was such an important part of my life. So, um, to be involved with that world professionally would, you know, it's a complete dream come true. It really is. So when you're working in the, in the world of finance and running from your desk, so how did you, how does this transition happen? And, and how does dirty dancing kind of <laughs> pop up in the middle of this? Well, I, I, I desperately wanted to uh, help create theater. I also very much wanted to be in film and television, um, but particularly film at that time and wanted to, I, I love storytelling and, and wanted both to be a storyteller as well as to, you know, be a producer and director and do all these things. Um, and I, uh, when I was in New York as an investment banker, um, I still, I didn't, I was working so hard um, I, I, I didn't ha I wasn't in the right circles to meet anybody that had anything to do with theater, but I was um, able after graduate school, um, which kind of further took me away from <laughs> and the entertainment business and business and, and, and uh, government at the Kennedy School of Government. Um, uh, I, I was able to do some jobs, I get some jobs because of uh, a resume that suggested I knew way too much about finance and strategic planning and all that. So I had jobs at Paramount Pictures in strategic planning, NBC in strategic planning. And, you know, I was hoping to find my way into the creative side of those companies, but they were, um, you know, the companies were too big. I wasn't able to move around. You're very compartmentalized and you, you, you know, you can't look beyond your, your responsibilities. So that uh, I figured that out fairly early on and was uh, saw in the trades an announcement about the formation of a brand new company called Vestron, a little film company uh, that would be located on the East Coast and also have an office in LA. And they were um, just launching. And I interviewed um, uh, for the company and they hired me 
to come in in the uh, to help from a strategic planning vantage point to help set up the company and to bring that skill set that I had to the table. And of course, I had absolutely no interest in doing that <laughs> and wanted to get, you know, start making movies. Um, and, uh, but it was a very small company, really just like mom and pop small company that was starting out. And so it was, a you know, there wasn't, there were very few people and there was so much to do in launching the company. So it was much easier uh, opportunity to, you know, start assuming responsibilities in lots of other areas. And within a year, I was head of physical production for them and, um, you know, overseeing uh, production on um, their film site. So it was, um, you know, very, very steep learning curve, really thrown into the fire. Um, and uh, one of the first movies I was responsible for was Dirty Dancing. It's such a lesson in sort of just advocating for yourself. You know, people always sort of want to start at these really prestige big companies that have sort of a brand name, but because it was a tiny company, you were able to kind of make all of these jobs for yourself and sort of make yourself useful in all these places really quickly. Like what a lucky thing in a way, in the Malcolm Gladwell of it all, sort okay. of having the passion and the time and also that luck of being in a place where suddenly you could yeah. make way for yourself as a young person. Um, did you know at the time that that movie would become such a like touchstone for so many people? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I love. Good night, it. everybody. Yeah, <laughs> I loved it so much. Um, you know, I uh, as as a young uh, Jewish girl, I related to it so much, and it. Yeah. it is a story that uh, I also felt had real political resonance, you know, and it, it addressed topics that I had never seen uh, addressed in film before. And I was uh, very um, passionate about seeing this happen. And what was great about Vestron also is that because there were so few people, um, it was, you were involved in every little moving part. So all the initial meetings with um, Emil Ardolino who was the director and Linda Gottlieb and Eleanor Bergstein, the producer and the writer, you know, when they first walked in the door, um, I was in those rooms, you know, and so it was really being part of it from the very beginning, all the way through, you know, even to this day, there's, there's <laughs> things going on with Dirty Dancing, but um, it, it was, it was just um, an incredible uh, uh, opportunity to, push and fight for things you loved and to um, be part of it every step of the way. So what did I know? I knew nothing. I had no idea other than the fact that I loved it. And right. I felt I felt that it was a movie that I wanted to take my parents to, that I wanted to take my grandparents to at the time. You know, it was, it, I felt it was a movie for everyone. And, um, but well, I was sort no of like, the my big fat Greek wedding of its day, right? Like this yeah. thing that is about a very niche, you know, group of people, yet it resonates all across, you know, the board because it's such a human story. Did that movie, the way my big fat Greek wedding caught fire like right away, it wasn't like something 10 years later that people discovered it happened in real time. Was Dirty Dancing like that too? Or was it something that, later on people rediscovered and it became huge? 
Well, what happened um, actually was uh, as as we were creating this movie, and we were the whole group of people involved in it. We were all newbies. <laughs> and we had a rough cut of the film that we believed in and we loved, and it was just in something we were so excited about. We really felt it was going to break through. And I, and I remember we were all stressed out because we were going to be up against La Bamba uh, in the oh release God, schedule. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> and at any rate, we um, uh, really were not knowing what we were doing. And so we, through somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody, we brought in a big Hollywood producer. Um, it was Aaron Russo, who was married to Bette Midler at the time. And uh, we were at, went to a screening room in New York City with him. And it was three of us from the, from Vestron sitting in the back, watching Aaron several, you know, close to the screen, watching the movie. And he got up and he, at the end of the movie, and he walked back towards us and he said to us, burn the negative, collect the insurance. And he walked out. So, you know, in answer to your question, <laughs> you know, we, we were, we loved it, but we didn't know what we had. And then we heard from this incredibly important at the time, you know, film producer, you have nothing. This is terrible. <laughs> and he walked out and we just, you know, it was very deflating. And we decided that um, we all loved it so much. We were going to keep going and we were going to fight for it. And I think the turning point for the film uh, was um, a New York Times story. Um, there was a New York Times story that ran the weekend that the film was released. And it was very much about, uh, not just about the film, but it was about the whole, the early 1960s and, and you know, um, uh, about the world of, of these hotel resorts like Kellerman's and, and, and it just painted a picture like it was right at that time before, the world fell apart in the 1960s, a very protected time. And, and, and it was a beautiful article, so well-written. And it just, everyone, you know, that, that was way before the internet, way before all these things, when you have 5 million different choices of things to, to read, everyone read that. And everyone then, you know, raced to see this film. And that weekend, because we were tiny little mom and pop company, we ended up camping out at Vestron because we all had to pitch in and help with distribution. And uh, because there was such a demand for the film, we, we were all um, uh, working around the clock to help get the film out there because there was such a demand for it. So it happened quickly um, and uh, it was not expected. Thank God you didn't burn that negative. Um, yeah. it, it created, you know, these really iconic characters. Um, when you hint at there are still conversations, I don't, has Dirty Dancing on Broadway? Um, oh, I, I, I didn't mean conversations like that. I mean, um, no, but yes, I'm, uh, I'm starting that conversation. <laughs> well, Eleanor Bergstein, the writer, uh, retained the rights uh, to Dirty Dancing. And, and so they, uh, she has had a version of the show touring the world. Um, for quite a, while, a long time, we have nothing to do with that. Um, I just meant that um, you know it's it's very fun, funny to 
30, 30 years later, 30 years Still, later, yeah. you know, we got calls this year from the BBC doing a huge dirty dancing special that they want to interview us for and all sorts, you know, we, we did the, this uh, thing on Netflix. And so, you know, it's still no one ever would have thought 30 years later, we'd be talking about that movie. That's for sure. The gift that keeps on giving. I want to, um, okay. I spent a lot of time on that just because it's, it's <laughs> so, uh, meaningful to me and so thrilling to get to hear more about really like how this little the little engine that could around that film so your first first broadway um show it was it golden child no it was full moon with bill it was full moon okay so okay so full moon with the great bill irwin how how did you get involved in that production well, I, I had been so desperate for quite a while to find my way into Broadway. And I, I finally met this wonderful guy, Jim Friedberg, who had, uh, was an established Broadway producer. And he was actually very interested in getting involved in the film world. And I was desperate to get involved in theater. And so I, at that point, I had a lot of projects underway. I had, um, uh, I had a lot of films going. And, um, he, and so I said, look, pick something of mine that you want to be part of. And how about I, you know, look at what you have brewing and, um, and I'll join you on one of those shows. And that's exactly what happened. And so um, he um, shared um, five different projects with me that he was that were in various stages of development. And I just immediately fell in love with um, what was to become full moon at that point. Uh, Bill and David were taking it to the Serious Fun Festival. It was uh, like a 15 minute th uh, thing. And they, they had just started to evolve it into uh, a full show. And I loved it. I just loved it. And I thought they were incredible geniuses. And it was a good thing I didn't know about theater at that point, because if someone said, okay, there's this show and no one speaks, and then there's this ragtag band and there are these clowns, but the they're not ringling clowns, they're European, you know, I, I, it probably would not, if I knew what I was doing, it probably would not have been something that was smart to do. And in fact, all the way through previews, we had maybe 50% capacity and very polite applause. And, you know, I just, I was loving everything, but then opening night, this is again so long ago, that it was, you know, uh, when the New York Times, where you camped out and waited for the New York Times to, you know, uh, basically be printed. And we had our associate producer waiting by the New York Times. And opening night, he came running in during intermission, waving the paper over his head. And it was a review from Frank Rich that was like the dream review of the century. Um, it was something like, peanut butter and jelly, Laurel and Hardy, Irwin and Shiner, and, you know, the ultimate show. So uh, the next night, it was standing room only, you couldn't get a ticket. And it was, you know, ovation after ovation. It was, it was after that experience, how could I not keep producing theater? So what are so the dramatic. things, I mean, that is like, that's the dream scenario, right? To believe in something, to think outside the box, to to go in where innocence is bliss as a way 
um, of thinking about it. What are the things that you learned? How many years ago was Full Moon about? 1994. Okay. I believe that. 1994. Yeah. Kids at home, you do the math. Um, What are things, because that's your you know, you're a baby producer at that point. What are things from that show and what and, and sort of what you learned on that show that you carry with you to this day in terms of how you choose material, how you approach producing, how you think of yourself at what is your job as producer? Because producer means a lot of different things, right? There's all sorts of... Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what carries over still from the sure. beginning. Well, I think I got lucky again in that I had no idea what the difference was between a producer who invests and a general partner producer who is, you know, deep in the trenches on a second to second basis. And uh, because Full Moon was a little tiny show, um, it was, uh, I was a general partner producer on my first show, which meant I had uh, fiduciary responsibility and was in the trenches on the show. And so I didn't know there was any other kind of producer. And so I, I were just- you raising, Were you helping to raise money or had Jim already financed no, no, the I, show? No, um, no, it was, it was um, uh, there were, we, we all had to raise funds. We all split it, uh, you know, 25%, 25%, there were four of us and um, with Ken Feld. Um, and um, we, uh, but, you know, thrown into the middle of actually, Producing so again, kind of like my experience on uh, at Vestron, it was an amazing opportunity to really learn how to produce a show. It wasn't just showing up at opening night, you know. It was day by day um, putting all the pieces together and helping bring this show to life. Um, every aspect of it, from you know the production side, the marketing side, the publicity side, everything. So it was an amazing experience and I've carried everything with me um, after that. And, um, uh, you know, we brought Full Moon back twice to Broadway, which was wonderful. But I think um, that first show also um, set, set the standard for me in terms of what, to throw myself into something and to, and my heart and soul. And it's similar back to Dirty Dancing. It was about passion. It was about, um, a story that um, I believed in and that had to be told, or it was just, it spoke to me so deeply um, that I d- wanted to do everything I could to get it in front of an audience and to uh, celebrate the work and these artists. And, and so, um, you know, that, that to me, every step of the way has been what it's been about. And I've been so fortunate to be able to um, have a career that that has had uh, projects, no matter how challenging. Oh my goodness, um, have have really meant the world to me, and have been worth um, uh, absolutely stopping my life and throwing myself into them to give them every opportunity for uh, success. I mean, you just have exquisite taste, and thank you. And you have become someone, you know, not just a leader in this industry, and also, you know, there are still very few lead female producers um, compared to how many male producers there are. Um, And I wonder if you can talk about, have you had personal experiences where you felt like there was um, 
I don't know, like a, a room that you had to prove yourself in, even with the incredible resume that, that walked in the room with you? Um, or did you not have experiences personally like that? Uh, I think early in my career, uh, what, it was less for me about being um, a woman. It was about being young. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, and maybe I just wasn't aware of the other, or it didn't occur to me just because I, because you know, you're I, you, I just never thought about it, but, yeah. but, um, I, I remember early on, um, you know, in league meetings and, and all sorts of things, like I'm talking about the nineties so <laughs> before most of the people listening to this were born. Um, but, uh, and it was a room full of older men, you know, and, um, and I, and I remember feeling the, that I had to really prepare and really work harder to make sure I was saying the right, you know, saying things eloquently that I, even though I didn't have all the knowledge that they all had from the history, from the years of their work in the, in the business, I, I needed to prove myself. You're right. I needed to prove myself, but it was more about age, I think, than, than being a female. I think where, where being a female, it really, you know, was, um, it's so much better now than it was. And I know we have a long way to go, but I, when my kids were little, uh, I remember very vividly, like being pregnant and being a producer on Broadway. And I didn't have anyone really to talk to about that. And I, and I know that there were moments where I was taken less seriously because I had little kids, uh, or, you know, um, there, it wasn't as, established as it is now and and so you know you just kind of at that time at least I had a mindset of that's their problem not my problem you know and and uh so I I, I just didn't think about it and just went ahead with my business but you know I I, I think and looking back it was pretty uh it was it's definitely come a long way and there's yeah. so many amazing women in our community now and it's such a great place for women to be. And I hope more and more women go for it. It, it uh, I mean, from my vantage point, knowing what it was, it's, it's glorious and it just yeah. is gonna get better and better and better. Uh, but it, it was pretty bad back then. Yeah. I wanna talk a little bit about um, sort of the, the pull, the push and pull of being a, a mother and having a career, you know, the theater, you work all day and all night, right? It's literally a 24 hour job because the show's at night and the meetings are all day long. And so it is really complicated trying to also get to the school play or get to the parent teacher. Con. I mean, it's a lot and, and be there at bedtime when you can. So how did you, first of all, you're married. Yes. And you're still married. Yes. <laughs> to the same person that you had your children with. Um, Yes. So there's, you know, from what I can gather and having your incredible daughter, Sammy, on the show as well, um, you know, there's a lot of teamwork that went on in your household yes, so that definitely. everyone could do what they love and succeed. Can you talk a little bit about like distribution of responsibilities and, and how, I mean, it's such a big question and, and we're not on a mama podcast, but I do want to know a little bit about like how you think about that. Uh, 
it is it it is teamwork and it and it was definitely um challenging and i think that there's so many different answers to to what you said creatively there were so many shows that i didn't do because i i didn't want to do book of mormon because i didn't want my four-year-old son singing those songs at school so um <laughs> so the kids were around and involved and you knew that they would absorb yeah. whatever the, i mean it's a family business in a way right it, it, it absolutely is my my husband um actually um uh produced dirty dancing and then we met um uh, on dirty dancing so he's in the showman's well. you had a showman's yeah so you know there's there's that and and um and so he understood the challenges I have and, and back, back to him. Um, and, and so our kids grew up very involved, um, you know, whether or not it's the film side of my life and my kids were holding the boom or, you know, uh, uh, there, they were there, you know, and in Thoroughly Modern Millie, um, my daughter was, you know, glued during previews to watching, um, uh, Michael Mayer direct, you know, and then Jerry Mitchell uh, direct on Legally Blonde, you know, so she, it was, it was how they grew up. They were very involved. And so I very, had to be very, very careful about um, what I threw myself into because I knew that they were going to be, they were going to be there. And that's just how, who I was during those years, because I wasn't, I was not going to just abandon my kids and they were, and, and I, and I also couldn't go off and make movies. I had to kind of segue to documentaries because I couldn't disappear for three months and not, uh, I, I wasn't going to be that. Um, I couldn't do that. So, yeah. you know, and, and so there were definitely compromises and challenges along the way and had, um, uh, support, which was invaluable, but there were so many times where I would, you know, I, I absolutely refused to get a place in New York City because I wanted to take my kids to school every day, but I would take my kids to school, go to the city, work, 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 come home, um, drive all the way back up to Westchester to spend time with them, have dinner with them, and then drive back into the city to finish the work in the evening, as you said, you know, because there are shows to see or if I had a show. So there was a lot of that, which um, yeah, that's a lot of driving. <laughs> but, you know, you had to figure out how to how to be as good as you can be in both worlds, you know, and it was challenging. It was challenging. And then, and I'm very grateful for um, the, the support um, from my family and, um, you know, everything that helped make being, living all those lives at the same time possible. Can you tell me, or are you allowed to tell me what, what you have coming up? I have uh, two documentaries that are, uh, one is about to come out that uh, one that I made with Sammy, uh, my daughter, who uh, uh, that we captured um, called The Show Must Go On and captured the behind the curtain of Cats and Phantom of the Opera in Korea during the pandemic when they were um, two of the only shows in the world running and their, their heroic efforts to keep theater alive during that time. And then I have another documentary that I'm finishing up and I had uh, work on it today. Um, that is called Beauty Isn't Pretty, and it basically is uh, takes on the global beauty epidemic. And we've been shooting in Korea, 
and Brazil and Iran, and um, we're in post-production. So I was working on that. You're just a true hero of mine. And I'm so, so honored to have had you on today, Dory. And I just can't wait to see what's next and to oh, be there you. cheering you on. Um, so thank you. Before I let you go, is there a little known fact about Dory Berenstein that you can share? A little known fact. Oh yeah. my gosh. Um, oh, uh, little known fact I cannot sing I break windows <laughs> I bet that's not such a little known fact in the world of people who know you <laughs> that's true that's true a very big known fact a very big known fact in the Berenstein household um I love you I thank you love for you giving too. us so much beauty and inspiration in the world and until next time well, safe. thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for your amazing podcasts and, and everything you do. I adore you. And I'm so grateful to you for everything and inspiring me. So uh, uh, congratulations and thank you. You're welcome. All right, sweetheart. Have a great day and um, I will talk to you soon. Perfect. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. One more thing, so many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out, and I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. The episode was edited by Nicholas Clark. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famusa with backups by Caleb Famusa.